Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to today's special episode of Mod Path Chat. In this third installment of our four-part series covering this year's ASCAP long course on lung diseases, I'm joined today by Dr. Natasha Rechtman, who served as one of the distinguished faculty of the long course. Dr. Rechtman is an attending pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with a focus on thoracic tumors. She's an expert in the field of lung cancer a member of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a member of the NCI Steering Committee for Thoracic Malignancies, and uh, probably most importantly for me, and I'm biased, uh, one of the stellar associate editors uh, of our journal, Modern Pathology. Thank you, Natasha, for accepting the invitation. George, thank you so much for this wonderful introduction, and thank you so much for the invitation to be here. I'm delighted. And we, you know, we go way back. I, you know, think I really am uh, grateful to all my teachers from my residency. You're oh. one of my wonderful teachers. I really could not be where I am today without the oh wonderful things that I learned as a resident. So whenever, you know, we have that connection that I wanted to mention. So oh, uh, very happy to be here for various reasons. Thank you. We're uh, we're, we're all very proud of uh, your achievements and uh, and so let's uh, let's uh, thank you. That was very kind of you. So basically, uh, what we're trying to do in in ten to fifteen minutes is just offer our audience uh, an hors d'oeuvre to the main course, which is your lecture that is accessible. The long course lectures are all on demand, accessible, and I would encourage our audience uh, if if they like what they hear, which I'm pretty sure they will, to go on and, and listen to the details uh, on the website. And also there'll be a, a, a supplement issue of modern pathology dedicated to the long course that will cover uh, what we talk about today. So with that in mind, uh, let's just touch on the highlights and, and tell me why you picked neuroendocrine tumors as a topic uh, of your talk in the long course. Um, well, I was 
delighted to be invited by the course organizers to speak on this topic. I think they picked me to cover this because I've uh, this is, has been my area of academic interest uh, over the over the years. And I was really uh, delighted to speak about this topic because a lot of I feel a lot of uh, the incredible progress uh, over the last uh, uh, decade plus has really been in the area of non-small cell, uh, non-neuroendocrine carcinomas. And that field really completely transformed, right? This is a, a lung, uh, non-small cell lung cancer is sort of a paradigm of uh, personalized medicine, right, where... Uh, the treatment is completely driven by uh, tar- by uh, targets and targeted therapies. And sort of practicing in that mode really brings in the contrast where we are in neuroendocrine field, which is a completely, completely different situation. Here, uh, it's really been an incredible struggle uh, to move this into uh, the age of personalized therapies. I mean, they're really mm-hmm. right now virtually non-existent. Uh, however, there's been just, uh, this incredible amount of uh, research, laboratory-based research, mainly in the area of small cell lung cancer, that I think really setting us up for next decade to see uh, the likely, the trend, hopefully, the transformation of this uh, of the of how we approach small small cell lung cancer, hopefully other neuroendocrine uh, cancers uh, to also to uh, uh, to per- to personalize to understand what the subsets are uh, and to personalize therapy so that the therapy that we give uh, really we know uh, which patients they will benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I think just working uh, being a thoracic pathologist that just brings into contrast the need uh, for progress and the need for more science in neuroendocrine area. I also really like this area because it really crosses um, all organ sites, right? Small cell carcinoma is something that we see at any site, but it's by far most common, 90% in lung. Uh, So whatever we study, I feel uh, benefits, uh, you know, throughout the organ systems, much more so than, for example, solving a subset in adenocarcinoma, lung adenocarcinoma, which is wonderful but it does not extend. Whatever we mm-hmm. learn in a small cell to some in large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma extends to other organ sites. And um, I think that's that's a very important point of uh, that uh, applicability of, of all you know classifications of neuroendocrine tumor and the push that is happening across organs to to homogenize, harmonize that that classification, which uh, We'll come back to small cell uh, in a second, which clearly is is the most important, probably player among the group. Uh, but but I noticed in in the talk uh, that I enjoyed uh, listening to it tremendously that you uh, you hit on some gray zones. Uh, so as far as like in carcinoid and large cell neuroendocrine, uh, the LCNEC group, there's some gray zones and some changes in the classification. Would would be nice if you can share with our audience. What are these and how how is this transferable to other organs or how different it is from GI, for example? So let me start by commenting on this issue of this basically basically what uh, what we can refer to as proliferative carcinoids in the lung, which fall into the uh, still fall into the gray zone of classification. Uh, uh, One thing I would mention is that it's not an everyday problem that we encounter, mm-hmm. even as a lung pathologist, 
And the reason for that is that vast majority, so the disease of lung carcinoids is gener- is predominantly more than 90% early stage, low proliferative receptive tumors. Uh, and this is generally a very, they tend to be straightforward. There is a great variation on morphology, but in terms of classification, these are very, very straightforward tumors and then and the criteria for them were developed in this primary tumor resected disease which uh, which is by by and large defined by uh, you know the fairly strict uh, range of proliferation rates uh, but what happens there is a percentage of carcinoids that are aggressive and they're metastatic uh, although the rate is not nearly as high as, in, let's say, in the pancreas or uh, intestinal ileal uh, and neuroendocrine tumors, which are in a predominant number of cases metastatic. So this, all these concepts of proliferative, more aggressive neuroendocrine tumors are much more developed in GI and pancreas by virtue of that setting, that situation arising much more commonly. But mm-hmm. it does occur in the lung. So we, within the last few years, uh, we published a study fully on stage four carcinoids. And once you look specifically at that disease, which is an uncommon disease, but once you look at that disease, then proliferative variants are very common, like a quarter. And they're very mm-hmm. hard currently to classify because they get beyond this uh, this uh, ceiling threshold that is set currently by metastatic uh, by for, for mitoticons, which was defined based on early stage tours. So this is sort of the background to this conundrum. But I think, as I mentioned in the talk, I leave it um, for the viewers to to check it out, and I will certainly uh, summarize it in detail in the in the review article. There is really an explosion of series because when you it, even though it's uncommon, when you encounter a case that just does not fit. This is sort of really gives you, and now there is a much better understanding of this in giant pancreas, which clearly is a very similar phenomenon. So that's why it's in the last, even the year, there's been a bit of an explosion of small series documenting these cases. So the WHO, we actually just got an announcement, will be released in April. This is the fifth edition of Thoracic WHO, which was completed. It does not, it's still, at the time of writing, there really was not as much data on these variants. Uh, so it does not, it still leaves them to default into large-cell neuroendocrine. So this problem of classification will continue, uh, but uh, at least our understanding that these are basically uh, analogous to NAT grade three, I think uh, is becoming um, you know, more better understood. There is no wow. question in the next classification that should be, uh, that should be further clarified. But basically, that's uh, yeah. I, I, I address that issue in detail, even though again, it's not an everyday issue that we'll see for thoracic specimens. But when you do encounter it, it can be kind of puzzling in terms of what to do with those tumors. And a couple of words about large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma. I mean, it's it's always been. Uh, how do you treat them? Uh, should they really be treated like small cell? Uh, and then does it matter that you diagnose? We know that it does. So can you tell our audience just a couple of words about uh, the biologic or the molecular subtypes that potentially can guide us in this exact question? Right. I know very well that the, uh, that the term lifestyle neuroendocrine tumors that do not fit into the categories we understand uh, very easily and that that are very well-defined, classic small cell, classic carcinoids. Once we get into the neuroendocrine proliferative tumors that are out of that 
spectrum. Everybody's blood pressure goes up. My blood <laughs> pressure goes up. And I've been like spending, you know, looking at so many of these cases. And I think where we are right now is we, I think we're gaining much better understanding of the biology and that heterogeneity that we see uh, really corresponds to molecular heterogeneity, that these tumors, what we now kind of put together as this neuroendocrine, large cell neuroendocrine carcinomas really arise have, uh, from probably different pathways and represent kind of this convergence of different tumor types. Uh, but at this time, uh, this is uh, in terms of the clinical, how we address it clinically in our microscope, in our daily practice, I don't think we have a good solution. I mean, we have a WHO criteria for identifying these tumors. And the, 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 the challenge is that there are some gray zones between, the, on the one hand, and most commonly what we discuss is small cell and large cell neuroendocrine, where, so where, where is a tumor cell size and amount of cytoplasm and chromatin qualities too much for small cell? Where is because it's a spectrum? So, and then we don't have, unlike many other uh, differentials in pathology, we don't have a biomarker. It's entirely morphologic. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have a differential of large cell neuroendocrine versus non-small, poorly differentiated non-small cell carcinoma, generally adenocarcinoma. Again, you know, you and you can have a some neuro. We know that very neuroendocrine marker expression, we, and we know biologically some of the large cell neuroendocrines have molecular features of adenocarcinoma. So where is the again? In some cases, it's truly a spectrum. So we're trying to classify cases on in this. Uh, some of them in the gray zones. Fortunately, many of them really fall into the buckets we can recognize, but there are gray zones. I think I really think until we have objective markers like we have p40 and ttf1 it's a common we know it's a common problem that non-small cell can be very difficult to classify by morphology and there's been very a lot a lot of challenges but now we have markers that we can rely on and i think that brings much more reproducibility and accuracy and i that's where i'm hoping we will get with all the additional biological knowledge molecular knowledge that we will understand better what the definitions are and uh, that's what I hope for the next in the next decade that we will have objective biomarkers that it will be like Adeno versus squamous. You see, a, a, you know, and what you recognize and your carcinoma and something you can do as a certain markers that uh, that will help either classify it or guide treatment. So something practical, which is most important. So I think there is a lot of work to be done. I think uh, what I would uh, tell pathology to pathologists is that. Um, uh, just I, I, I completely agree. It's, there are a lot of challenges in this area, and just to have uh, the the hope is that with again that we will have progress. That will we are currently having progress on molecular side that that will translate into how into uh, into biomarkers. But at this time, that's that's where we are. It's a morphologic diagnosis, and there are cases that fall into gray zone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Excellent. And uh, let's let's finish up with the most uh, important member, which is the small cell. Uh, there were uh, uh, a couple of... Uh, things that caught my, caught my attention is, uh, which is really occurs a lot of time, not, not every time we do neuroendocrine markers to diagnose something as small cell, but, but then when you're faced with either very little expression of neuroendocrine or negative expression, and, and you, you touched upon a couple of players there, like the uh, SMARC, uh, a uh, deficient undifferentiated tumors and, and nuts and, and the uh, POW2F. Can you, can you share with our audience, what's the significance of these entities? Thank you for bringing it up, George. I think I think that the story uh, with neuroendocrine low small cell and understanding what it represents uh, is the, really, I feel, is the most exciting story that I have been involved, involved in and I, that I have witnessed um, in this area. Um, in in many years, I think it just uh, even though this applies, so the uh, the vast majority of small cell carcinomas are uh, positive for our usual neuroendocrine markers, synaptopoiesis, chromogranin. But we know uh, we've always known, right, that there, mm-hmm. there is this concept even of neuroendocrine negative small cell. But generally, that applies for small cells that are negative for synapto and chromo, right? Usually, you know, in the thoracic uh, pathology, we do use CD56. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't love it, but the reason it's being used is uh, because of that issue. 20% of small cells uh, can be negative for synapto and chromo, and you just, this was another very sensitive marker. The issue, it's very nonspecific. And then in the recent years, uh, INSM1 came along. This is a really a great nuclear marker. So with those, all of those markers on board, the issue of truly neuroendocrine negative 
uh, small cell becomes exceptionally rare, but it does exist. And nevertheless, when you encounter a tumor that has really, really minimal or virtually negative expression of neuroendocrine markers, which is negative for TTF1, uh, it can be really puzzling. It's been always, it always puzzled me, like what do these tumors represent? Why are they doing this? So this marker, uh, POW2X3, comes uh, completely from laboratory studies. It was not from pathologists. It came from a screen uh, in cell line work as a dependent uh, marker, uh, so marker on which the cell survival of the subset of small cell depends. And then when they looked into it further, they really, they I noted this is kind of a very peculiar subset that has low neuroendocrine markers. I have to say, when I first read that paper and saw other uh, comments. I was um, I wasn't sure uh, whether or not it. I, I wasn't sure if those were really small cell uh, carcinomas. It was just so surprising. But you know, in uh, recent years, we've started working with all these markers in our um, uh, in our group and collaborate because of the great interest of our oncology group. Uh, because the thought is that these are the markers that will so power 2F3 and other mark transcription transcription factors will transform. Uh, the field of small cell and will allow personalized medicine because the expression is thought to be um, associated with different therapeutic sensitivities. So we started working with these markers and we were really struck to find, uh, particularly for this POW2F3, that it is the marker uh, that defines these small cells that I that I either completely neuroendocrine negative again, which are very rare, or have really minimal expression of neuroendocrine markers. It's a diffuse transcription factor, uh, this diffuse nuclear factor. So it's a it's a uh, it's it's fascinating biologically. It's a marker uh, you can um, uh, I, again I refer for a little more detail. Uh, uh, to my talk, but it's a marker of so-called Tuft cells. That's another fascinating story. The Tuft cells. Who's ever heard of Tuft cells, right? Amazing. Uh, I is, saw the pictures, yes. This is this mysterious cell type that now is emerging as related to this about 10% of small cell. We'll ha- there is so much to learn. Is this just lung or uh, how about extrapulmonary small cells? Are some of them also related uh, to this very unique um uh, cell type. And again, we don't know if it's origin or if it just re- recapitulates the phenotype. There is so much to learn, but, you know, very, so biologically, absolutely fascinating. And it gives us a diagnostic marker. We all know uh, some small cells are very straightforward to diagnose, like, you know, typical adeno. You don't need markers to diagnose typical adenos, keratinizing squamous. We don't need markers for that. Some small cells are like that, right? If they have very, very classic morphology, you have a really well-preserved uh, specimen, especially in cytology. The reality is that some cases are so crushed, fully preserved, sections are thick, uh, and there are new mimics. Like you mentioned, George, there is now this smart, other undifferentiated tumors particularly in smokers, the smart for deficient undifferentiated tumors or sarcoma, they will call sarcomas or sarcomatoid tumors can be very close mimics in biopsies that are crushed. They can express neuroendocrine markers. KI67 is 100%. Uh, so there are uh, basaloid, as I mentioned, basaloid squamous cell carcinomas and crushed biopsies can be tricky markers. And in general, I think where practice is moving is uh, even if we have a really uh, great uh, you know, feeling about the diagnosis uh, and great and fair confidence, we will do just confirmatory markers. 
to confirm the, the impression of small cell. And so this is where these situations, in some cases, just confirmatory. In some cases, where you're truly not sure because of preservation and you really want markers to support your diagnosis of small cell. And you, we encounter these cases. And that's why I think this power 2 x 3 is a really, I think it will be a very helpful marker. I think this will be, uh, I think it will be useful in practice. So that's very exciting. Very exciting, and I can yeah. sense the excitement and uh, the yeah. ideas for a lot of uh, upcoming projects. And uh, yeah, hopefully... and I hope our GU colleagues who see a small cell will be testing this out as well. I mean, exactly. Maybe we should do it in prostate for those uh, for sure. not so typical small cell after hormone withdrawal and all that. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for uh, for uh, an engaging conversation. And again, uh, be in the lookout for the audience. Uh, 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 for the uh, supplement uh, containing the review on the talk. And uh, please go ahead and, and listen to the talk, uh, which is uh, a very exciting talk. Natasha, I wish you the best and uh, hope uh, I really appreciate all your help you do for the journal. I know it's a lot of work, uh, but it's very important work. George, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I really appreciate the invitation to be here and thank you for all the opportunities. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.